I will never forget the question the Ukrainians asked. It was my first teaching in Ukraine, my first teaching trip. And at the end of the week, with this class of men, we sat in an apartment over lunch, and my mentor, Tim, and I asked them, okay, so ask us anything. Do you have any, any questions, anything you want to you just pick our brain about, about church, ministry? And of all the questions they could have asked, just to think, of all the questions you, you, you think they might ask you, this was the one. What, what do you do with all the widows? How, how do you support all your widows? And I thought, wow, okay. I was not expecting that question. But in Ukraine, uh, they have a whole generation of men who had alcoholic, alcoholism and died of uh, liver failure early, and so they have this whole generation of, of widows in their churches. And so Tim and I had no answer. We had no answer because we don't experience that here in the United States but we also had no answer for their question because we are so rich. We are so rich as Americans. And this leads us to uh, the topic that Jesus is speaking to us today, the parable that he is speaking on about money. And, and it makes this parable something that we must listen to. We must listen to. We must listen to because we are so wealthy, so wealthy. Um, they are not, we are. And so when Jesus speaks about money, we need to listen. We need to listen slowly and carefully and humbly. And it, it is ironic that while the topic is money, the, the root of the issue here should really speak to us in our fears about COVID, our, our fears about our country, our fears about everything that's going on right now. Ironically, the two issues will come together. They will intersect in perhaps surprising ways. So what I want to do this morning is look at the parable and make sure that we simply understand Jesus because it is one of his most unique parables, which involves an actor in the story who is explicitly dishonest. It's like, huh. So we need to understand Jesus' point. But then we will look at the principles that we encounter in the parable, and then I will offer what I believe to be Jesus' intended application to them and for us. Okay, now the first question before we get into the parable is, why does Jesus use parables? Why does Jesus use parables? What's going on with parables? Well, depending on the situation, there's several things going on. But in general, in general, it is really, really simple. Okay, you ready for this? Write it down. Jesus tells a story to make a point. <laughs> Jesus tells a story to make a point. Sometimes we make the parables way too complicated. Jesus tells a story to make a point. This time, it's to his disciples. This is very important for understanding the meaning. In this section, as we walk through this section of Luke, he's alternating between teaching the scribes and Pharisees and then his disciples, and the scribes and Pharisees and then his disciples, and this time it's his disciples, it's us. So here's the story. There was a rich man who was a manager who, was, uh, who had a manager, and this manager was overseeing all of his possessions, and this manager was almost undoubtedly a slave. It was his slave, um, and the rich man was his master. Now, ancient slavery was, in many ways, 
different than American slavery. Often, rich people would entrust to slaves their entire household and all of their possessions and all of their business dealings. Um, so in some ways, this man, this, this, this manager, this slave is not unlike many of us who have a mortgage and student loans and a car loan and a managerial job, as we moderns like to say, slaves to the grindstone. Not unlike that. And somebody else then brings charges to the master, maybe somebody that wants the manager's job, brings charges to the master that his chief slave, his manager, is mismanaging his possessions. He's not following your directions. And again, to Jesus' listeners, the, the, the slaves like this were notorious for this in those days. So they would have immediately said, oh, yeah, 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 I've, I've seen this before. So, verse 2, the master calls him in and calls him on the carpet. Hand over your books. You're fired. You're done. You're out. It's as if he's saying, I want your office empty and you gone by 5 p.m. You're done. And the slave gives no defense because it's true. He has been mismanaging the funds, the possessions of his master. He has been using the master's resources in ways that are against the master's wishes. And so, verse 3, he takes stock of his situation. What shall I do? I'm being fired from being a manager, and I'm a paper pusher, so I can't dig ditches, but I'm too proud to go out on the street corner and beg. So he's in a, a kind of a no man's land. He is homeless. He's homeless. And then he gets an idea, verse 4. He wants to be welcomed, to be received, to be shown hospitality into someone else's home, someone else's household, someone else's dwelling. And so here's the idea, verse 4, and it is the definition of shrewd. Webster's Dictionary should just put this Bible verse in the definition for the word shrewd in the dictionary. Before the proverbial five o'clock comes, he goes to the other rich men who owed his old master debts, and to each one he says, how much do you owe the master? How much do you owe? And which he's asking them probably for two reasons. Number one, uh, he doesn't have his books anymore. He had to hand them over. And number, number two, his books probably weren't accurate anyway. And then number three, uh, that subtly involved them in the whole thing. So, so now they're telling him what the amount of the debts are, and he says to each one, write it down by half. Write, write it down by, mark it down by 25%. Mark it down by 50%. Because after all, at this point, the debtors don't know that he's... As far as they're concerned, he's still the authorized agent of the old master. It's genius. Genius. Because then when they find out that he's been fired, what will they do? They will respond to him in gratitude and hopefully welcome him in, in some capacity into their households. It's genius. <laughs> it is the definition of shrewd. Shrewd. And... So then we get to the first part of verse 8, and a, I think there's a little catch of, of Jesus' sense of humor coming out here. The old master's like, he commends him. He's, he's like, wow, I'm not even mad. <laughs> that, that is awesome in terms of shrewdness. I'm not even upset. I'm not even upset. I'm impressed. Well done. I'll, I'll see you at the next uh, rich guy's manager's convention, you know, in August. Well done. 
And surely that's because the, the, the shrewdness, that, that kind of shrewdness is how the old, man, the old master got his wealth in the first place. It takes one to know one. And this explains the, the second part of verse 8, where we then start to get an explanation of Jesus' point. The master's not mad. The master's not mad because it takes one to know one. The old master's not mad because he knows shrewdness when he sees it. That's how he got his wealth. And he's like, huh. For, Jesus says, the sons of this world, of this world, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Than the sons of light. So here, here's where people get hung up on the parable. It's like a, the whole thing's like a Mad Men episode where, you know, there's like one person cheating another and then the, the second person like appreciates the other one cheating and it's all just one big cheat fest, you know. Um, but I assure you, Jesus is not telling us that dishonesty in God's eyes as God measures it is okay. But what he is affirming in this is, th- is this, verse 9. And I, and I might add here that verse 9 is rare for Jesus. He usually does not give us an explanation of his parables. But he does here because he knows that we might get hung up on the part about the servant, the main character, being dishonest. Verse 9, here's the point. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, or literally mammon, so that when it, unrighteous wealth, fails you, you will be welcomed, you will be received, verse 4, you'll be received by them, by these new friends, into their eternal dwellings. Now, here's where we need to slow down and and consider just what Jesus means here. And in the original language, the the accent, Jesus' tonal emphasis here is on the word yourselves. Yourselves. The reason why the old master was so impressed with the fired servant is that the fired servant had acted so shrewdly for himself. For himself. But the children of light, verse 8, we often think, we should not so brazenly act for ourselves. That's, that's how the children of light, well, that's, that's a, that should be above me. I'm, I'm, I'm a holy person now. And, and here is a truth that is as profound as it is dead obvious, and that's why Jesus is telling us the parable. <laughs> that's why Jesus is teaching us this, his disciples. That is, Jesus is saying, my disciples, be shrewd like this slave. Make friends for yourselves with mammon, with mammon, with wealth that you have acquired in this life so that when the mammon fails you, and it will, these friends whom you make with your wealth will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Eternal dwellings, not temporary dwellings of this world, but eternal dwellings. Not not, not dwellings that will fail you, but dwellings that will never fail you. Not something that you will lose, but something that you will never, something that you will lose, but something that you will never lose. So we will, we will define who these friends are in our final point, but for now, Jesus is thinking here about dwellings of this world versus the dwellings of heaven, the house that Jesus goes to with many rooms, the world versus heaven. And so when Jesus says that our possessions today are unrighteous, what he's, what he's really talking about is not that, that wealth has something inherently in it, that is unrighteous. Now, he's not saying that money is inherently unrighteous. He's saying that it is part of this world system that is temporary and is passing away. 
the system of this world, that, that, that's where it's sourced from, the wealth that we get, and therefore it is, it is unrighteous in that sense. It's unrighteous in the, in the context of, of the fact that they come from this world. And so we get another hint here of Jesus' meaning by the word that he uses in verse 9 for, the, for wealth, that is mammon. And it, it is fascinating. The word mammon and the word amen in Hebrew come from the same root. The same root meaning that something is trustworthy or true or can be trusted in. When we pray and we say amen, what you are saying is those were trustworthy words that were just spoken. Everybody trust in those words for they are trustworthy because they are true. That's what amen means. Mammon, fascinatingly, has as its root something that people trust in. So, uh, when Jesus here talks about mammon and he intentionally uses the word mammon, he's think, thinking here about something that we trust in, something that we lean upon. So, we, we still have a few details in the parable to work out. We're, we're fleshing out the parable, but here's the point so far. Um, my true disciples will not trust in earthly, unrighteous mammon, but will trust in something else. We'll trust in something else, and an implied promise here. An implied promise here. My true disciples, my true disciples know that wealth in this world is, is unrighteous. We know this. And so we are tempted to distance ourselves from money and from possessions and to not think too much of them, to not think about them very much. But this is a mistake. My, my real disciples will not trust in mammon, on the other hand, but they will not distance themselves from mammon, from wealth either. They will not stand aloof from it. Instead, they will shrewdly use wealth to make friends who have eternal dwellings so that those friends will welcome them when our unrighteous mammon fails us. When our unrighteous mammon fails us. So let me, let me say that one more time. My true disciples know that wealth in this world is unrighteous, so we are tempted to distance ourselves from it and, and think it's just an unholy thing that we should not have much to do with. But Jesus says that's a mistake. That's a short-sighted mistake. But it is also a mistake then, on, in the reverse, to put our trust in mammon. What Jesus is saying is, my true, authentic, real disciples will not do either one. They will instead shrewdly use their wealth that has been entrusted to them to make friends before five o'clock comes, to make friends with eternal dwellings that those friends will welcome them, not if, but when their unrighteous, our unrighteous mammon fails us. And that, that's always coming for all of us. There will come a point when we say, you can't take it with you, right? At some point, our unrighteous mammon will fail us. Okay, so, so that's the parable, but we need to crack it open further and to shine more light on it to, to put these pieces together because we still have questions. Okay, so, so what, is it, what does shrewdly mean? What does that mean? And we can get at that question by asking another, who are these friends? And then we still need to back that up a little more in saying, why is Jesus using this example of a dishonest manager? Why? You know, it just, it leaves us like, what? Like, almost a little embarrassed about Jesus. Like, surely you're not doing that. Surely you don't mean that, Jesus. Well, I'll start with the last question, that, that question about the dishonest 
manager. Remember, Jesus is talking to disciples, people who have already turned away to some degree, in some way, turned away from the master of this world, the God of this world. You and I, if we are in Christ, we have already turned our loyalties in some way away from the old master, the God of this world. And we have, if nothing else, turned our loyalties towards Christ. And in real life, that means, you know, you've stopped buying online porn or you've slowed down. You, you stop sending money to Planned Parenthood and you stop spending all your money on drinking binges. Um, and you've started redirecting some of that money, say, to tithe to the church or Compassion International or to a missionary or to a crisis pregnancy center. Um, you're buying episodes of The Chosen. You know, you're, you, you've, you've started acting differently. And in this sense, when you do that, when you make that turn, you have begun using the money that, from, from a very real perspective here, which I'll show you in a second, you have, from one perspective, actually begun to, to use that money um, that, that belongs to the God of this world, you've begun to use it wastefully from his perspective. You've begun to use it wastefully from his perspective. Verse 1, you've been wasting his possessions. You've been mismanaging the money that he entrusted to you, the God of this world, little g God. You've been mismanaging the funds, the wealth that you've been given from his perspective. From his perspective. Um, we've broken our fiduciary duties to the devil, <laughs> to our old master. And so, um, what, what we notice here is that in this, in this world, our possessions are never our own. Our possessions are never our own. They are entrusted to us, no matter what, either to be employed by one master or another. There is only one place in this passage where our possessions are described as being ours. And we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten there yet. But in this life, in this life, our, our possessions are said to be the old masters or, as we will see, verse 12, they are said to be another's. And there is no middle ground. They are, our possessions are not our own. We will use them to serve one master or another. And so you become a disciple of Christ and you now start wasting the possession, wasting the possessions that the little g God of this world uh, wanted you to employ in different ways. You, you start to be disloyal to the God of this world. And for this, he will spit you out. You're fired. You're fired. For, for their generation and for ours, there is almost nothing, nothing that encourages this kind of disloyal behavior in this generation. Google will never create an online app that warns you of the biblical warnings about hell for sexual immorality before you buy pornography. Never. The state of California will never consider tithing when it calculates how much of a tax burden they can levy on the people and get away with it. When you follow Christ, you are being disloyal. By definition, you are being disloyal to the system of this world and to the master of this world and of this generation. And you will be fired cast out because you are now useless. You are now useless to the system. 
You're useless, and there is no home for you in this world, in this system, for such people who follow Christ. And so you are left in a barren no-man's land. You're looking for another home to be welcomed into. And there is a similar thought here that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says uh, there in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what this man is thinking. Now that I've been fired, what what a pitiable existence awaits me. What a pitiable existence. I I, I can't, I'm I'm forced to to either beg or dig dig ditches. It's 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 a pitiable existence. If there is no other home that I may be welcomed into, if that is true. But as Paul goes on to say, no, that's not true. Christ is risen from the dead. But the point here is that when you die and your mammon fails you, you and, and you still have no home to be received into, you, you are most to be pitied because what was it worth? You would have been better off doing what the master of this world wanted you to do, just sticking with the world and eating and drinking and getting high and being merry. You should have done that. It would have been much better for you. At least you would have enjoyed the ride down to the pit. But that's not an option for a child of light that's not an option for us. So, so Jesus is pointing out that our temptation then, our temptation is, because we don't want to do that, our temptation then becomes to put our trust in something else. And the temptation right in that moment is to put it into money, into, into wealth itself. This is a temptation for the children of light. For those who have said, I'm, I'm going to turn away from the old master and then replace the old master with mammon, which is like a trap door that just leads us right back to the old master. Our temptation, once we see this barren landscape that awaits us because we're no longer following the system of the world, our temptation is to put our trust in mammon and cover it over with, of course I'm following Christ. And Jesus says, Maybe you are, maybe you're not. We, we're tempted to put our trust in money, in wealth, to, to hedge our bets. We turn away from the old master and we see the barren landscape in front of us and we trust in mammon. This is the American temptation. Raised on Christ, we trust in the economy. In the almighty dollar, we trust. This is why so many Christians... So many churchgoers into, in their response to COVID, our, our, our response has so often essentially been, oh crap. <laughs> That's been the response of so many Christians to COVID. Oh crap. Why? Because the thing that we are actually been trusting in has fallen, has failed us. Not God, but that wasn't the thing we were actually trusting in. I, I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know if I'm talking about you or not. I'm, I'm saying in general, I don't have anyone here in mind. I'm just saying that in general, that churchgoers, children of light, have shown themselves in the last two years to actually have been trusting in, in, in the dollar, in the American dollar, we trust. That's why so many people have been much more concerned about raging inflation than they have about raging hordes of people destined for hell. Is that you? Is that me? May the Lord show us because it's all by grace that he might show us. It's all for our good. So if anyone, you, anyone else, but, but if anyone, if, if a child of light 
actually ends up turning from the old master, but then actually trusting in mammon, it is the most pitiable existence. It would have been much more enjoyable just to stay with the old master. But in the end, if you trust in mammon, all you will have left is an earthly dwelling, a temporary dwelling. But if you trust in Jesus' words and his promises here, you will have a welcome, Jesus says, into an eternal dwelling. Which leads us into the the next couple of verses, verses 10 through 11, and it's a very simple proverb I think we could all agree on. If you're faithful or dishonest with little, so you will be with much. So then verse 11, God agrees with this proverb. If you have not been faithful with temporary unrighteous mammon, who, when that fails, will entrust to you true riches? Verse 12, if you have not been faithful in that which is another, who will give you that which is your own? And here is the first time in this parable we are said to have been given something, to possess something that is our own. The question here, the question that Jesus is putting before us is not whether we will be faithful or unfaithful to a master with our possessions. You and I cannot help being faithful and unfaithful to a master in this life with our possessions. The only question is which master? The only question is which master we will be faithful to and which master we will be unfaithful to. We will love the one and we will hate the other. And with each of these options, um, with each of these options, they come with a dwelling that will be our own. But on the one hand, it will be a dwelling that perishes, that leads to the grave and to the pit. And in the other, it will be our own, and it will be a dwelling that will lead to our eternal flourishing forever. And there is no option three. There is no option three. There is no neutral middle. There, there is no way to, to have it both ways. There is, no, there is no possibility, Jesus is saying, though you may be tempted to think so, after, after leaving the old master, you may be tempted to think that there's a way to have it both ways and, and to love money and me. There is no neutral middle. Between the two masters is a no man's land. We can't have it both ways. Therefore, verse 13, we either serve one master there or the other. We will either love one and hate the other. We will devote ourselves to the one and despise the other. And there is no third option. There is no neutral middle. We cannot serve God and money having turned from this old master. This master just leads back to this one. It is not possible to be an authentic, true disciple of Jesus, to be welcomed into his eternal dwellings without shrewdly using the wealth that has been entrusted to us, without being unfaithful and dishonest to our old master. We, we cannot be welcomed into eternal dwellings without mismanaging the wealth that the God of this world has entrusted to us in order to please the master who owns eternal dwellings. And actually, no, it's not quite him. It is his friends, which again, we will come to in a moment. 
but the dwelling you get depends upon the master you serve. And there is no neutral middle, either an earthly temporary one or an eternal one that is yours. Okay. So then, if the goal is to employ our possessions to please God, then who are these friends? Who are these friends? Because the, the parable ends and you, you think it should be God, right? It should be we, we, we please God and then he welcomes us into his eternal dwellings. Well, of the various interpretations, I think the best that makes sense of all the data here is this. It is Jesus' teaching elsewhere in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. And because it is so important, I, I'm just going to read this in full. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, eternal dwellings. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. End of quote. So these friends that Jesus is referring to, these friends are, are like a stand-in for Jesus. Jesus, we, God, we, we cannot see, we, we cannot touch, but we can touch and see the people mentioned in this passage. These are his friends. These are the people that we have seen throughout Luke. Throughout Luke these are the people that we have seen Jesus welcoming, giving hospitality to. Who? Prostitutes tax collectors, the sick, the aged, the worthless in the sight of this world. These are Jesus' friends. And Jesus says, when you do these things to one of these, you do it to me. And on the last day when I return, they will stand up and say, 
Yes, I was loved. I'm the evidence of faith. I, I am the living embodied evidence of that one's faith because they believed in your promise. They believed in you that you would give an eternal dwelling to them and they lived out that faith to me through a cup of water, through a, a gift of money when I was short that month. They welcomed me. I was a massive sinner. I was literally a prostitute. And I was welcomed in as an honored member of the family. I used to be a racist. And they welcomed me in. They treated me like a sister. I was an abortion doctor and I killed baby after baby after baby and they welcomed me in as a child, as a son of light. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Because we've read our Bibles and we see that Jesus would go on to be the cro- onto the cross and be rejected himself to be fired by the God of this world, to be cast out into the utter darkness on our behalf, to have the Father's face turn away from him so that the Father would never turn away from us. That's why we do this. He was rejected. He was cast away so that we could be welcomed, given hospitality by God, treated as righteous before him, not based on what we have done. What Jesus is saying here, this is not works righteousness. He's not not saying we buy our way into the kingdom. He's saying that this is evidence of our faith. This is the book of James being anticipated. Faith without works is dead. And we show our faith, we show our delight in what Jesus did for us on the cross by doing what the master wants of us, the master who died on the cross for us and who won us in his resurrection, who won for us an unbeatable, everlasting hope. And what does that master want from us now? He wants the glory of what he did on the cross to be reflected and multiplied across his creation. He wants the whole earth to be covered with his glory and the glory of what? The glory of his grace. The glory of his grace. He wants that more than anything else. And so we are the recipients of that grace. And so we want to show it. We who were once deplorables before him like everybody else. And so when we see the least of these, we don't any longer see them the way the world sees them. We, we no longer see the world the way the world does. If we see Christ like this, do you? Do you see Christ like this? Because when we see Christ like this, what the world sees as throwing your money away, we see as a shrewd investment. <laughs> we see as a shrewd investment. One of the most beautiful moments in the book of Acts is when Barnabas sells a field, okay, an income-producing property, an income-producing property, sells the field to pay for bread for widows, which even Dave Ramsey might say was a bad investment decision. Oh, but it was beautiful in the sight of God. Beautiful. Because Barnabas was looking forward to the lands that were to come, and he knew that he wasn't losing anything. 
all he was doing was mismanaging the devil's funds. <laughs> and he did it with a grin on his face, and he gave a grin to the whole church. We see the world differently. What the world sees as throwing your money away, we see as a shrewd investment. And with a grin, we take the unrighteous mammon that the world has entrusted to us to pour back into the system of the world, and we instead give it to a widow. We, we, the, the money, that the, the unrighteous mammon that the world would have, have us spend on getting more money and sex and power, we use it to support the work of this little-known hole-in-the-wall place called Grace Church. Bad investment. Very shrewd. Very shrewd. Again, it's not works righteousness. We're not buying our way into heaven. It is an expression of faith and hope and joy, and it is our spiritual service of joy and gratitude and faith to our new master, faith in his promise of an eternal dwelling. Thus Paul, after taking 11 chapters in Romans, giving no commands, telling us not once what to do in 11 chapters, laying out the gospel, finally in chapter 12 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, which there really means our entire physical life, our entire physical reality that we live within, our physical sphere, to present your, your physical life, including wealth, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, worship, and it's this way that we do not become conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what is that will? God is invisible. He needs nothing. His will, as I've said, is to, is to show the glory of his grace around the world. And we do that one by one by, by seeing differently little moments with specific people and we respond differently we sell fields we sell fields to put bread on the table of a widow we sell a rental property that we have to support someone for six months terrible investment decisions by the world standards by the god of this world very shrewd in light of the eternal dwellings so who are these people when we when we think about ministry when we think about any ministry, we must always think in terms of people because Jesus' endgame always involves people. Whether you are pushing a broom, leading up front, or anywhere in between, people. So the three people, as far as I can tell from Scripture, that Jesus wants us to shrewdly aim and, and employ our money for, the three people are these. Number one, the poor in spirit the poor in spirit. Number two, the poor in provision. And number three, the poor in wisdom. So let me briefly explain those. First, the poor in spirit are those who do not know Christ, who need the gospel. The second, the poor in provision are the truly poor among us, beginning with those inside of the household of faith, beginning with those inside our church. And there are some there are some needs that are coming up in this calendar year where we as a church are going to need to step in and live out this passage. Um, we might also combine these two. Jesus has mentioned those who are in prison. 
There is a person closely connected to our church who is in prison at Rio Casamnes Correctional Center and who wants nothing more than to remain closely connected to our church. Um, will any of you live this out and go visit him? Go visit him. But number three, the final category is those who are poor in wisdom. And by this, I mean, no offense, children. <laughs> um, for far too long, we have entrusted the formation of our children to pagans. Not all. There are public school teachers in our church, and I respect and honor their work. But uh, we, I believe we have done this as a church, as an overall church, far too long because we have worshipped we worship the mammon that the government compulsively confiscates us to pay for this public education, this pagan education. And because of that, we have allowed our children to be raised up in this formational environment because of our love of mammon. So we do not have the option, let me put it this way, we do not have the option to employ our money willy-nilly however we want not if we are Jesus' disciples, and not if we desire to do that which pleases him. We don't get to make up what pleases our master. It is these three categories of people that Jesus says, these, these are my people. These are the friends that you must make friends with in order to be welcomed into eternal dwellings because this will demonstrate that you are my disciple. This will demonstrate that I am your master because disciples do what the master wants. And these are the ones that I really want you to employ your money for. Terrible investment by the world standards. Shrewd investment for eternal dwellings. I want to say one more thing about the children. Um, it, it is a dream of mine that we might have a school. We might have a school that people of all economic backgrounds and demographics, racial um, uh, financial backgrounds may come and be raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Will God do that? We'll see. <laughs> but it is, it is a dream of mine. Isn't there one already in, in uh, Elk Grove, Greater Elk Grove? Yes, there is, but ask me about that later. <clears throat> but we can only serve one master and so the question before us today is, which will it be? Note here that Jesus is not calling us to perfection, but to a specific Jesus, the King, defined direction. One defined by the Master, which will demonstrate our discipleship. And, and Lord knows that I, I'm, I'm thankful for this, this not perfection, but a Jesus defined direction, because I'm still working out a lot of this in my own life. And in my family's life. And, you know, moving to California hasn't made, hasn't made it much easier, you know. Um, we, all, we all have questions. Should I spend the money to go to the Niners game? Should I, uh, should I take my wife out to eat for a really nice meal? Or should we just go to Chick-fil-A? You know, there's all kinds of, of run-of-the-mill questions that we have about this. And we need each other for this. We need to walk in prayer and with our Bibles open for us. Jesus does not demand perfection and all these things, but a Jesus-defined direction. But I do know this, I do know this in the, in the future. You and I, we cannot follow Jesus on this path without freeing up money where it is presently enslaved by the God of this world in order to employ it for the, mass, the true master's will. 
So that means for some of us, the first step for you is to pay down credit card debt and then pay down the car and then pay down the mortgage and pay off the mortgage. And you say, but wait, again, isn't it, isn't it good to leverage an appreciating asset? Isn't, isn't that a bad investment to pay down the mortgage? Again, by the world's standards, a terrible financial decision. Terrible. Very shrewd. Very shrewd in light of heaven. Um, in light of heaven. It's the most shrewd investment you may ever make. So, one, one temptation here. There are many Christians, however, who make paying off the mortgage as an end in of itself. Their eternal dwelling is, really, their promised land is the mortgage-burning ceremony. And that, too, is trusting in mammon. It looks like it's decorated in Christ, but it's not. So, for far too many Christians, our promised land, our eternal dwelling is found in getting to that that green, that, that blue sky, green field area, but that is not true discipleship. That's still saying amen to the mammon. Now, to follow Christ means to believe that the cross is empty and so is the tomb, that Christ is crucified for all of our sins and he has risen from the dead. And therefore, that this means, quoting from John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And in the passage before us this morning, Jesus has laid out the way. Jesus has told us the way. This is the path. This is the way. To believe in God's promise that he rewards all those who seek him and to believe to believe that it is possible to live a pitiable existence, living for earthly mammon, all the while thinking that we were living for God. And to therefore employ our money shrewdly, no longer seeing the world with the world's eyes, but with the eyes of God, with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of hope in his coming eternal dwelling. And therefore, that there are interactions with the lost and the poor and the children, and, and, and therefore the church are no longer empty moments, but they are all shrewd investment opportunities. Because these will be the ones at the return of our risen Christ who will testify to our faith, who will be evidence of our hope that, because they were the recipients of it. I must, quote, I must end with this. It, it's, it must be spoken, this famous quote, Jim Elliott, the famous missionary who was killed by the very people that he wanted to save, once said this, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When it comes to our money, the choices are death and life, the temporary and the eternal, a short-term lease, or the only possessions that we will ever be able to call our own. Jesus places these choices before us. God grant us to follow him in the way. So let me pray for that now. Father, I do pray that you would give us faith. Father, I, I think now of what so often tempts me or moves me to trust in mammon is fear. And this is the same thing which, which perplexes many of us these days is fear. 
So I pray that by your spirit, your, your word and your promises laid before us today would dispel our fears. Um, that to be with you is the greatest gain. To live in your eternal dwelling is the greatest, um, the greatest trade. To give up the whole world to be in your house forever. That would be the greatest trade of history. Dispel our fears by the greatness of your promises and dispel our fears by the strength of your promises proven for us in a bloody, empty cross and in a dark, empty tomb. Thank you. Thank you for being so generous to us and saving us. And Thank you that you add to that eternal riches that will truly be our own, that no moth can eat, no rust can destroy, nothing, no one will ever be able to take it away from us. It will never fail us because you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are a good, good God, unfailing in your mercies, infinite in your love towards your children. Thank you. May we walk in faith in these truths, I pray. Amen.